All right, uh, we are going to talk about a subject that uh, I would prefer not to have to teach on, uh, but uh, is an important subject, and it's about hell. Hell. There is a hell. And nobody spoke about hell more than Jesus. Nobody. It's not even close. Uh, and Jesus has given us a number of vivid descriptions uh, about hell. And frankly, what he has taught us about hell is absolutely shocking. And so this parable today is going to deal about the study of hell. Uh, but before we get to it, I have a couple of uh, preliminary comments to make about it. Uh, and that relates to how Jesus viewed this teaching. Understand this. Jesus is not speaking to pagans. This parable is not about pagans. It is about people who considered themselves religious. These are about people who are worshiping religiosity, not God. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And they elevated uh, the law to a high degree. And so Jesus is focusing his teaching on that. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. This is not the parable, but it's kind of an introduction to the parable. And there Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Wow, Jesus. Ooh, you're so strict. I mean, I, there's a situation where obviously there are people that are going to go from this life and go on and, and come face to face with the Lord and are going to maintain that they're entitled to heaven. Why? Because they say they knew Jesus. Because they say they prophesied in his name. And in this case, they said, we even drew, uh, threw out demons in your name. And yet Jesus said, I never knew you. Meaning what? Meaning that there's a whole subclass of people that are involved in religion that are not serving God. Sorry to break that to you, all right? Meaning what? They're serving themselves. Uh, they're serving denominations. They're serving religiosity. And the perfect example of that was the Pharisees. As they came face to face with God himself, they repudiated him because they elevated their own practice of religion. And so you see here, uh, and this is a, a shocking verse where Jesus says this, uh, and there's a couple explanations for it. Number one, they could be lying. They could be really not, not ever uh, putting out any demons in Jesus' name. Or number two, they could be doing it in the name of Satan. Who knows? Uh, and number three, it is possible that God gave them some limited authority even as he was trying to draw them closer to him. You understand? Draw them closer to him, and yet they were not being drawn closer to him. Uh, they were effectively still worshiping religion. Uh, it's very simple there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Are we doing the will of God? 
Are we serving the will of God? Are we bowing to God's will? Is everything in our life conforming to the will of God? Uh, and that's the essence of, of, of this message, really. Uh, and, and so much of the world's religious activity, uh, effectively, is nothing more than a highway to hell. I'm sorry to tell you that. So much of the world's so-called religious activity. Uh, look at Matthew 7, verse 13 to 14, where Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So there's the point of walking with the Lord Jesus. It's a narrow way. There's not a thousand ways to God. There's only one way to God, all right? And merely because you belong to a church or maybe on church committees or maybe a deacon uh, or maybe in some leadership, don't think that that's the essence of what's going to get you to heaven. The only thing that's going to get you to heaven is are you serving God? Have you committed your life to the Lord? Have you put everything on the line for Jesus Christ? Is that, is that who your lodestar is? Is it Christ or is it all these other things? And here's the thing. So many good people uh, will say, well, I've been a member of this church for years. I've done this. I've done that. None of that counts one whit for God. Otherwise, why would Jesus go after the Pharisees? Are any of us in any way as religious as the Pharisees? These guys were amazing. You know, they, they were so religious that they would actually carry what's called phylacteries, which were little leather boxes around their necks filled with verses from the Bible. All right? That's how dedicated these guys were. And they were punctilious as it related uh, to the ceremonies and followed them religiously. That's why they murdered Jesus, because they didn't like the way he dealt with the Sabbath. So they were so filled with the ceremonial aspect of their faith that they didn't understand the true key part of what their faith was about. It was God. It was about God. And when you lose the essence of God, your religion isn't going to carry you one, one bit. And Jesus made this so clear uh, continually uh, about the Pharisees. Uh, as he said there in one verse, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. How about that? Hypocrites. You talk a good game, but you don't live a good game. And God sees your heart. God sees our hearts. And so his contempt for religiosity sent shockwaves, shockwaves through, through Israel, shockwaves uh, through the Pharisees. No one in the history of Judaism ever worked harder than the Pharisees uh, to enforce their religion and the statutes, and the ceremonies. Nobody worked harder. Uh, not only did they work hard to, uh, to lift up the current rules, they added additional rules relating to ceremonial purity. Uh, and so they literally wore their religion on their sleeves. And Jesus said it was for naught. It was for naught. Because God looks at our hearts. Uh, and so Jesus, not one time ever saluted the efforts of the Pharisees. Never. Never. Uh, and, and so, in fact, what's so interesting, when Jesus finished the parable 
uh, about the unjust steward that we studied last week, when he finished that, uh, the very next verse indicated that the Pharisees, quote, derided him, derided him. In other words, they repudiated him. They repudiated him. They were tone deaf, you understand, about the real things of God. Uh, and so they never really understood the inflexibility of the law. And I told you this. Here's the grading scale of the law. A hundred is a perfect score. You got a 99, that's an F. You understand? That's an F. A 99 out of a hundred is an F according to God. That's the holiness of God. All right? That's the true measure of the law. The law didn't save you. All the law was meant to do was to let you know how much of a sinner you were and how much you needed a savior. That's what the law did. And instead, they elevated the law, never understanding what the law really was. Uh, and they never understood that the law also governed the secret thoughts of their heart. How could they think otherwise when after listening to Jesus, all they thought about is how they were going to murder him? How they were going to get rid of him. Can you imagine? This is the religious elite. This is the top of the religious food chain in a country. And yet this is how they thought. Well, you see, that's how Satan acts. And I'm telling you, it's in so many churches today. So many churches. And it cuts across denominational lines. I don't care what denomination you're dealing with. You're going to see this across the board. Uh, and that is why we have to constantly say we have to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to be where Jesus is. I want to walk with Jesus is. I don't care about the rules and regulations of churches. I don't care about that. I care about what Christ said. There's only one book that concerns me, and I'm holding it here. This is it. And there's no other book that matters. This is the only book. You know, it's interesting. We had a young man who was a Mormon who came to our church and uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we were able to get him to convert to Christianity. And one of the things I said to him is, I said, there's no other book. There's no other book. And you know, the Mormons have the, the Book of Mormon. Uh, and, and look, uh, I, respect, I respect all kinds of people. And one of the things I would say about Mormon people is I never met a Mormon who was not uh, a good person. I never met a Mormon who didn't have excellent character, who didn't lead a clean life. But here's the thing. It's not about your own self-righteousness. You understand this? That's what we have to give to the world. We have to explain to the world that any, any religion that says there's another book besides the Bible is a book that's not going to heaven. All right? Simple as that. Not going to heaven. There's only one way, and Jesus made that perfectly clear. There's only one way. Uh, and so this becomes an important analysis for us. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. This parable about hell uh, is launched for the Pharisees specifically. It applies to all of us, but on the day that he gave it, he was giving it to the religious elite of Israel. It highlights the horrors of hell. It will haunt the well-to-do, the self-righteous people who do not see their need for divine grace. Uh, this parable confronts us with the awful truth about the afterlife. And now that I've introduced it for you, turn to Luke 16. 
Luke 16, beginning with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool, to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will also not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said, to, he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And how ironic that Jesus tells this parable where in a few short months Jesus will rise from the dead, rise from the dead, and they still will not believe. They still will not believe. And so let's understand this, this passage, what it means to us and how we can drill down on it. This passage deals with the opposite ends of torment, of comfort, uh, heaven, and hell. There is a hell. There is a real place called hell. Jesus would not give you this parable if it were not true. Uh, and the characters here, main characters, are an extravagantly wealthy man who had every possible thing going his way, and a beggar. And now their fortunes are reversed, you see, in the afterlife. And if you were a Pharisee of that period of time, when you heard this story, you would have assumed the beggar was going to hell. Because they would have assumed, well, you see, God is punishing him. Look at where he is. He's just going to hell. Uh, and the other guy has gotten so many blessings, he's obviously going to go to heaven. But this is a deeply disturbing story uh, in which Jesus is urging the religious elite to repent. That's what this is about. This story is given principally to the Pharisees, to the religious elite. Uh, and, and so if the story slams you with dismay, then that was the correct intent of Jesus Christ. He wanted you to be dismayed. He wanted you to be upset. 
That's why he told the story. Now, here's the sad part. A teaching on hell is unfortunately taboo today in a lot of churches. Oh, come on. John, do we have to hear this story about hell? I want to come to church. I want to be uplifted. I want to feel good. I want to get around the campfire. I want to do marshmallows. I want to sing kumbaya. Oh, Jesus loves us. I want to have the love of Jesus surround us in so many ways. And so I want to feel good about myself. When you preach a message like this, I feel lousy. I'm not feeling good about myself. Why am I coming out 8 o'clock in the morning on a Monday to feel lousy about myself? Well, here's the bottom line. You're feeling lousy about yourself because I'm concerned where you're going to spend eternity. All right? I'm concerned where you spend eternity and where your family is going to spend eternity. And I know that the vast majority here of all of you have given your hearts to the Lord. This is a message that's not just given to you. It's given to you to give to others, to your family. That's what this is all about, that you can spread the word of God. You know, for many churches today, hell is an embarrassment. Uh, it's an embarrassment. We don't want it. it. makes us feel uncomfortable. But here's the bottom line. This, if Jesus spoke about hell more than any other character in the Bible, how can we ignore it? How can we ignore it? Uh, and the Word of God says often and categorically that he will punish evildoers with everlasting punishment. Look at Matthew 25, verse 46. In which he said, he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And this parable really relates to the conduct of this rich man as it related to that Lazarus lying outside his door. Uh, what you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. That's why when God puts things in front of you, where opportunities come in front of you to serve God, to do things for the kingdom of God, we have to do it. Uh, and and it's, it, there's other verses here that says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Look at Revelation 14, uh, verse 10. It says, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath, they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torrent will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. You understand that. In the last days, in the tribulation, when the beast comes, when he comes back, and you will have to take the mark of the beast in order to get anything in this world, whether it's food or water or money. You will have to take that mark and listen. You see what Putin is doing now uh, to the Ukraine. Do you seriously doubt that there couldn't come a time when some evil man couldn't come and interpose his will on this world and that he would insist that there be a mark that you take, all right, that it's Satan himself in that capacity? And Jesus is warning you, don't take the mark. Don't. Take the mark. And if you never listen to another thing I ever said to you, remember this, that on that day, uh, on that day, if you think 
that you have to take that mark in order to advance your interest in this world, I'm begging you, don't take that mark because there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness. And you see how it's described here. Burning heat and sulfur. I mean, the Lord doesn't mince words. The Lord doesn't mince words. And so this parable that we've just studied here is the Bible's most vivid description of what hell would be like. It is a horrific story. Uh, We're supposed to be grieved by it and supposed to be upset by it. Uh, I told you I don't even like teaching it, uh, but I feel that I have to do that. I believe that God wants me. I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit uh, as a Bible teacher. Uh, Satan would prefer that I not teach on it. Does that surprise you? Come on, John. That's an exaggeration. Don't be filling people's heads with these thoughts. You know, gosh, you know, John, hell's an, an imagination. It doesn't really, why would God, why would God send anybody to hell? How am I doing? Am I making, am I sounding good? Am I, am I, why would, he's a good God. He's a loving God. Why would he send anybody to this horrific place? And here's the answer. He doesn't send anybody. You go in your own accord. You understand? He gave you the lifesaver, Jesus And instead, you took the lifesaver and said, I don't need that. I can do it myself. I can do it myself. And so he's not sending anybody to hell. We're walking there on our own. And some of us are taking a high-speed train to get there. I mean, seriously, when when I look at this world and I see what's going on in this world, the complete repudiation of God. In, in every way. And so, yes, Satan would prefer that I not teach on it. He'd prefer that you go through life blithely ignorant. Blithely ignorant. That's why he's happy when the churches don't teach on this subject. He likes that. Uh, and so here's the bottom line. This is not a true story. This is a parable. Uh, yet real names are assigned to it. Jesus assigned the name of Lazarus. And, you know, he never really assigned any other names to any parable. So that kind of differentiated it. And so there's a couple of things that stick out in my mind as I study this. The first is that there is a great gulf fixed. There's a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell. There's a great gulf fixed, and those that are in the one place cannot travel to the other. You can't go there. They can't go to see you. There's a gulf fixed. Uh, and, and it is not, this is an imaginary narrative, but it is told with a didactic purpose. Jesus had a specific didactic purpose in presenting this parable. Uh, Jesus is demonstrating to you and to the Pharisees in the first century what hell would be like and why some man, some wealthy man would be in hell when you notice There's no great sin mentioned in this parable. There's no great sin in this parable. Uh, And it is an agonizing experience filled really with regret and anguish and finally without any hope. It portrays a shocking reversal of fortune. The beggar is in heaven. The rich man is in hell. Uh, And it destroyed people's carefully crafted theology. If you were a Pharisee at that period of time, and most other uh, listeners, you would have been shocked. Nobody would talk like this. 
Nobody would put a wealthy man uh, in hell and put a beggar in heaven. Uh, And so this parable introduces you to the life of this rich man. Now, it's not the fact that he was rich that he's in hell. He's in hell because he's a narcissist. You understand? He's a narcissist. It's me, 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 I. Even in hell now, look at him. He's concerned about his own family, his own interests, all right? You don't see him being concerned about the interests of of so many other people. It's the same thing. His life was a feast of virtual pleasures. Now, is it a sin to have pleasure in your life? No, there's no sin. Can you have a nice house? Yes. Can you have a nice car? Yes. Can you even have a boat? Yes. Can you go on vacation? Yes. But don't be obsessed with that to the extent that there's a beggar laying at your front door and you don't take care of him. Can I get an amen? You understand this? There's a beggar lying at your front door and you ignore him. You ignore him. And that's what this is about. This is what narcissism is about. Uh, he, He was a man who obviously other people would defer to. He lived his life surrounded by sycophants. Uh, and, and under the average teaching of the Pharisees of that period of time, they believed he was assured to go to heaven. You understand? We're going to heaven. I'm wearing the phylacteries around my neck. I'm a Pharisee. I go to the temple. I, I observe the sir. I'm going to heaven. Well, what's your heart like? Well, well, somebody move that beggar off my front step. I'm tripping over him when I come in and out. You understand? You understand how God looks at the heart? Uh, And here's the point. Jesus is preaching this to the Jews, not to pagans. This, to me, is astonishing. Jesus is teaching this to Jews. He's teaching to so-called religious people, demonstrating that their religiosity is not going to get them to heaven. Now, how do I know that this man is a Jew? Well, we know it because he addresses Abraham as, quote, father. And Abraham refers to him as son. And so clearly there is a religious connection here. He was a Jew. Uh, He therefore must have had uh, a working knowledge of the covenants of the law and the promises of God. He had to have had a working knowledge. As for the poor man, Lazarus was beyond destitute, all right? The poor people felt sorry for Lazarus. Uh, He was unable to even care for himself. He was laid at the rich man's gate. I'm certain that people said, well, here's a guy that can take care of this, this destitute character. Lay him at the gate, presuming that the rich man would dispense charity towards him, and yet the record is empty of any charity. Uh, Here, this poor Lazarus longed for the crumbs that the dogs would pick up uh, in order to eat. Uh, And the Pharisees would have regarded such suffering, physical suffering, uh, as evidence that he was cursed by God. Well, he wasn't cursed by God. It was the happenstance of this world. Uh, And and so they would have assumed he would have been hell-bent to go to hell. In fact, it's absolutely not true. The shock of Jesus' story is the great reversal. The great reversal. And this is what Jesus wants you to remember. 
the beggar died and was carried to the bosom of Abraham. And during that period of time, reference to the bosom of Abraham was effectively heaven. Uh, while the rich man died and now is ensconced in hell. Uh, and there is, there is irony at every point in this story. The name of Lazarus, Jesus uses that name here, means the Lord has helped me. How about that? The Lord has helped me, which I think is one of the reasons why Jesus used that. It evokes divine favor. Uh, the rich man, on the other hand, is not given a name. Uh, and here's the bottom line. He is no longer important. This man who had such great importance in this world, now his importance is, is irrelevant. Now, why is the rich man in hell? Why is he in hell? Well, Jesus does not charge him with any serious sin, you see. You don't see a, an indictment of one sin after the other. In fact, the, the, the story does not even mention any specific sin at all, no specific evil deed. However, it is clear from what we read that he was selfish, he was uncaring, he was stunningly oblivious uh, to the needs of his neighbors, he was a supreme narcissist, caring only for himself because he did nothing to aid Lazarus. This is a lesson for you. Narcissism is a sin. You can't wallow in your own affluence. You can't contain yourself in which you don't care about those who are around you who are in need. If God has blessed you, and you have heard this as a recurring theme of this Bible study from the beginning, everything that you have came from him. Everything that you own is his. Now, you be a good steward with what he has given you and give to those who need it. Give to the kingdom of God. That's what this story is about. Well, this man didn't do any of that. He just patted himself with more luxuries. Uh, and so Jesus purposely, you see, purposely does not paint the rich man as uncommonly cruel or as a heinous evil doer. Uh, that is not the point of this story. Notice also that the rich man does not ask for reconsideration or release on the grounds of pity or mercy. I like that. He didn't ask, please get me out of here. Please have mercy on me. Please revisit my case. Right? Please, right, let me have an appeal on this. Somebody made a mistake. I couldn't possibly be here. He understood, you see, and I think that's one of the realities of hell. I think that when you're in hell, I think the cold reality of why you're there is absolutely set in your mind. You know why you're there. It comes back to haunt you. It is a haunting aspect of hell. Uh, and so he knows that he deserves to be in hell, which I believe will happen when, when those who get there, those miscreants get there, will understand that. Uh, all that he asks for is the slightest hint of relief. Lazarus, please just tip your finger in cold water. I'm burning up here. Uh, uh, and also, can you please send Lazarus back so that my five brothers don't wind up here? Uh, and why does he do that? Because he knows his brothers are exactly like him. You understand? They're living the same life for his five other narcissists, weaving their way directly to hell to follow his brother. 
they're going through the motions of religion. All right? Here's what this is. Going through the motions of religion. Do these people go to the temple? Yes. Do these people celebrate the ceremonies? Yes. Do these people celebrate the Sabbath? Yes. Do these people tithe to the temple? Yes. Do these people elevate the law? Yes. Then why are they in hell? Why are they in hell? Because God demands your heart. God demands your heart. And your heart is not reflected on your trips to the temple or even on your tithing. All right? God sees your heart. And in your heart, do you love God? Do you elevate God? Do you worship God in every aspect of your life? Because merely celebrating the law and the ceremonies and the Sabbath counts for naught. It's nothing. It's nothing. Don't tell me about the fact that you've been a member of your church for 50 years. Don't tell me that. Tell me that you've been serving God for 50 years. That you walk every day in life carrying the cross. That you've picked up the cross and walked with Christ. That's what he wants to see. Uh, And so look at this guy. He's in hell and he's still attempting to give Lazarus orders. Don't you love it? He's still attempting to give Lazarus orders. You know? He, he, he tells him, go, go, go and tell my brothers. And by the way, tip, dip your finger in some water and come and, and, and touch my tongue. He is still the same man. Totally narcissistic. Totally self-concerned. Uh, even now, even as he's concerned about his brothers. He never practiced the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. You understand? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the world. Love those around you as yourself. That guy, that despicable, sore-filled beggar at your front door is your neighbor. Oh, I don't like that guy. He makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like bringing him into my house. He's got all those sores. He smells I don't like that. Well, you want to know something? That's exactly who God wants you to, to address. Really. And, you know, here, here's one of the things that I've recognized. This is our responsibility, our cumulative responsibility as churchgoers. All of us here are churchgoers. We are not going to change the life of people that are on the sidewalk. Can I get an amen on that? You understand what I'm saying? People that are on the sidewalk, unless we take them from the sidewalk into the inside of our church, we're not going to be able to change them. And yes, they don't look like us. They may not smell like us. They may have sores. In so many ways, Lazarus is symbolic of those kind of people. You understand? And God looks at your heart. Looks at your heart. Does your heart break for them? You know, this is why... That when, that when that unfortunate grandmother came into the church uh, to present her uh, four grandchildren, who she had just adopted from the age of 18 months to nine years of age, that I was seized with conviction in my heart. I was seized with conviction in my heart. What is wrong? There's something wrong here. What's going on with this lady? How is this happening? And then when I said to the church, and I'm not indicting any specific church, it's the nature of church. What are we doing for this woman? She's living in a 600-square-foot dilapidated trailer with eight people. 
And her son and daughter-in-law, son committed suicide and killed the wife before he did that, and their bodies lie for eight hours outside in the driveway. What are we doing for these kind of peoples? And the church said, well, what can we do? What can we do? Now, I'm not uh, denigrating that specific church, but I'm denigrating the philosophy of what can we do. You understand? The philosophy of what can we do. And I went home and I was convicted. Uh, And God laid on my heart, John, you have to lead this. You can't let this stay like this. You can't let four little kids live uh, in a crime scene. Uh, And as a result of that, when I went into the Bible groups that I had led, I said to them, immediately the Lord has touched my heart. I believe we have to raise money to get this woman out of this trailer and put her into a house. And in three months, my Bible groups, including this group here, raised $250,000, bought her a house, paid the house off, and filled that house with furniture in every single room. And not looking for thanks or elevation or affirmation from anybody in the word, but for God himself. The newspapers wanted to talk to me. I didn't want to talk to the newspapers. I didn't want the glory of God to be in any way deviated from what had been taking place. This was about God. Amen? You understand? This is about God. This is how we are to act. This is how God wants us to live. This is your neighbor. This is what it means to be a Christian. Not to be self-centered. Not to be focused just on ourselves. But to understand that we have a greater call in our lives. And so here he is. And, and, and now he says, the, the rich man says to Abraham, send Lazarus back because if he, a, a dead man comes back, they're going to listen to a dead man. Really, yeah, they're going to listen to a dead man. All right? Listen, Jesus raised Lazarus, the other Lazarus, from the dead. And effectively, that, that wound up killing Jesus. And they also tried to kill Lazarus. So what does that tell you about it? Then Jesus would rise from the grave. There'd be 500 eyewitnesses, and they still didn't believe him. All right? Look, here's the thing. What this tells you about, it tells you that Jesus is saying that let them listen to the word of God. You understand what Jesus says there? Let them hear the Moses and the prophets. In other words, go back and read the other 39 books of Scripture. That's what's going to get you to heaven. You understand? Go back and study the Word of God, exactly what we're doing here. This is a powerful affirmation by Jesus of the Scriptures, the Word of God, which is deemed totally sufficient. Uh, Romans 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Of God. The rich man was in hell not because he lacked information, but he was in hell because he ignored the message. You understand? He ignored the message. Now, the rich man's request uh, was typical of what Jesus heard all, of, all the time. The Pharisees would constantly ask Jesus to give them a sign. Uh, And you can refer to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 there. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, 
we want to see a sign from you. It's almost like, can you got any card tricks? You got something you can do? Because if you can do something special, I'm sure we can believe in you. Can you imagine talking to God like that? Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, I'll give you a sign. I will defeat death. I will walk out of a tomb. That's the only sign you're going to get. And there will be 500 eyewitnesses about it. Take the Scripture seriously. Take the word of God seriously, just as it was predicted and prophesied in Jonah. And so a few months after this, this message, the that this parable was told, Jesus raised uh, his dear friend Lazarus from the dead. It was an amazing miracle. Well, how do you think the Pharisees responded to it? Because they were all there. All right, there was a vast crowd around that when Jesus brought Lazarus out of the tomb. Turn to John chapter 11, uh, verse 44 to 53. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him, but, underline, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. We just saw Jesus pull a dead guy out of the ground after four days. You think they were stunned and said, this is God? Look what they said. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. We need to have a meeting. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this... Everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Oh, my! They're going to take away our temple, who God has repudiated as well, their temple, and our nation, as if your nation means anything. Where do you stand with the kingdom of God? You're walking right in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then one of them famous guy, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Can you imagine? One man die, then the whole nation perish. And John goes on to say, he did not say that on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They plotted to take his life. There's your so-called religious elite. That's what happens when you elevate religiosity. You're concerned about the temple. You're concerned about the nation. And meanwhile, you put God under your feet. Rather than heeding the very message of Jesus Christ, they resolve to eradicate the messenger himself. Look, folks, miracles have no special power to convince those who have rejected Scripture. Scripture is first. That's why we study Scripture. 
The message itself, the message of the Bible, the message of every word in this book is to convict people for salvation and to draw them to the cross of God so that everyone who believes will be with Christ Jesus, so that everyone who believes will be in heaven. This issue will become relevant. You won't have to worry about hell because you're called to be with him. And when you're called to be with him, no power, no principality can ever take you out of the hands of the Lord. Can I get an amen, please? And so what was the reaction of these religious people when Jesus himself was resurrected on Easter morning by the dead? What was the reaction when he walked out of that tomb? And so what you see immediately after the resurrection, the chief priests were told about events at the tomb by the temple guards. There were a number of temple guards that were put there. Guard that Guard that tomb. Don't let anything happen to that tomb. Don't let those disciples get in there and do anything. Shut that tomb down. And they're told by the events by those guards. Were they convinced? Were they convinced when the tomb was empty? Not at all. Look at Matthew 28, verse 12. Matthew 28. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan. They gave the soldiers, those who were serving at the temple, who had, who had testified that the, the temp, that the tomb is empty, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Oh my, every step of the ministry of the Lord was repudiated by these people. Every message of the Lord was repudiated by these people. What you see here are people so sold out on their own religion and religiosity that they didn't care about their heart. They didn't elevate what God wanted. And you see where this path leads. Satan deludes such people. Make no mistake about it. And this kind of thinking, I hate to say it, but it's found in churches all over America, all right, where people are elevating their own religious practices over and above the service to God. Don't let that happen here. You people go back to your own churches wherever you are and be responsible to make certain that the correct worship of God is taking place. You do that. You be responsible. You be the kind of Christian that changes the storyline. And you be the kind of person that can tell a lost world what is facing them, just as Jesus described what is facing them. Hell is a real place. I don't want anyone to go there. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this message. I thank you for these words. I thank you for this warning, Father. And so, Lord, I, I ask that we be inspired to leave here to understand this message as it resonates with us and to go out to a world and give it to people who are not saved to let them know that this is Jesus Christ giving this warning. It's not us. These aren't our words. These are the words of our Lord and Savior. And so let them ring true. Let us deliver that message. Let us walk more strongly with you every day. Let us have the courage to speak out to a lost world and convey this message, Lord. I pray for our people. Protect them this week. Bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you all. God bless you.